how do you share good news? Uh, we are uh, going to be taking a Walt Disney trip uh, later this year in uh, early December. And I can assure you this is going to be good news when he finds out to our seven-year-old. Uh, and so Cheryl and I have been kind of brainstorming how do, we, uh, how do we share this news with him? Because you don't want to share it too soon. Because then our whole summer will be hijacked by that news. And every single day we will be discussing it. So you don't want to share it too soon. So we've kind of thought about that maybe uh, we will just uh, wake him up the Saturday after Thanksgiving and get him in the car and say, we're going to Disney. And then that seems like a good way to do it, right? But, but good news, you do have to think about how you're going to share good news. Some of my favorite videos that get forwarded uh, through YouTube and uh, online are the gender reveal videos. Have you, have you seen some of these? Where a, a couple uh, has decided that they're going to do a gender reveal party and they do this intricate kind of elaborate video uh, to demonstrate to all of their family and friends the gender of the baby uh, they're, they're expecting. It's, it's fun to watch because good news is supposed to be shared. Uh, some of my favorite moments when a sports team wins the national championship is a lot of times they'll ask one of the athletes, you know, what are you going to do now that you've won the championship? And a lot of times they'll say we're going to Disney World, but really before they go to Disney World, the city that the, uh, the sports franchise is in usually has a huge parade and a huge party uh, because a national championship is good news and good news needs to be shared. Uh, this is the theme of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up uh, to Galatians 1. And uh, we're going to start there. Seems like a good place to start, right? Um, the series that we are starting today is called Independence. Independence. Independence uh, on, on Christ is, is the idea of it. And this is a series about good news. This is a series about grace. And we use the, the, we use the phrase, the gospel. If you come to church on any regularity, you, you'll hear the idea of the gospel. All that word means in the New Testament is good news. And if you'd allow me the liberty, I think it could be translated even, even more succinctly, succinctly, the best news. So the book of Galatians is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul to a series of churches in the region of Galatia. And the point of the letter is to teach us what good news is and what good news looks like and why God's grace is such good news. So we're going to be in this June, July, and August. We're going to be in this great book all summer long, and we will go ahead uh, and start in chapter one. And I say, let's start in verse one. All right. So, all right, here's where we're starting. All right. Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man. We're going to talk about this idea a lot more next week, but sent by man, uh, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. So let's pause here. All right, after verse, you can see why this is going to take all summer long, but let's pause here just for a minute. I want to introduce you to the Apostle Paul if you don't know much about him. Before the Apostle Paul was a follower of Jesus, Paul was a religious leader in Judaism. As a matter of fact, in one scripture, Paul will describe himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was part of the religious elite. And, and because Paul was so serious about his faith and such a zealous religious leader, Paul's sense of righteousness and Paul's sense of goodness drove everything. That this was a guy who trusted in his resume to make him right with God. He said, if I'm going to be right with God, if I'm going to have the relationship with God I was created to have, I've got to be righteous. I've got to be good. I've got to trust in my resume. I've got to trust in myself. And he believed he would be saved 
And he believed he would be made right with God on the basis of his works and his righteousness. It drove everything. And listen, this isn't just an Apostle Paul thing. I think that this issue, this is just kind of a pet theory that I have. I think this issue drives our culture in spades. I've preached this message before, but my personal observation about our culture is that we live in a culture that is desperate to appear as moral that is desperate to appear as righteous. This is why social media is so popular because we can kind of cloak whatever, however we're living and whatever we're doing in the most righteous and good way possible. It is why moral outrage is at an all time high because we are desperate to appear more moral than each other, more righteous than each other. We are desperate to appear moral because we believe our right standing with God and we believe that our eternity is gonna be secured by our own goodness, that I am a good person. And we've bought into this false idea, and it is false, this false idea that in order to be right with God, in order to be right for eternity, that I have to be, uh, that, that I, I'm going to do that in my own righteousness and my own goodness. And one of the things that people like this believe is I think they believe that there's like a long line with God. And at some point, and only God knows where, at some point there's going to be a cutoff, right? And at the back of the line, that's, back of the line's easy, right? The back of the line, you got Hitler, right? You've got Joseph Stalin. You've got some of these guys. And at the front of the line, that's semi-easy. At the front of the line, you've got Billy Graham, right? At the front of the line, you've got Mother Teresa. At the front of the line, you've got Steve Higgs. No, no, you don't. Trust me, you don't, right? And somewhere, only God knows where, somewhere there is going to be a cutoff. So in this kind of spiritual paradigm, my goal and my objective is to stay ahead of enough people to prove myself good and prove myself righteous. Right? And a lot of people view spirituality this way. That I just got to you know, I don't know where the cutoff is. It's certainly ahead of Hitler and Stalin, but I want, I want to be a little safer than that, right? I don't want to be just better than them. So I need to prove myself more righteous than enough people to stay at the front part of the line. And this is not the gospel. This is not the good news. And as we read through the book of Galatians, you will see that theory fall apart. But here's what I want you to know. You just have to look at Paul's life before he met Jesus. You just have to look at Paul's life to see that that paradigm, that I am going to prove myself right by my righteousness. I'm going to prove myself good by my goodness. I'm going to prove myself okay with God by how I behave. You just have to look at Paul's life to know that this doesn't work. Paul himself will articulate that this, this system of living did not bring him any joy. Because when you trust in your own goodness and your own righteousness, for whatever reason, you tend to be very harsh and judgmental. Here's what we're going to learn about the Apostle Paul. He became so harsh and so judgmental that he killed Christians for a living before he became one. Right? So they tend to be very harsh and judgmental. Paul himself would say that this system didn't bring him any hope because he constantly wondered, am I good enough? Am I righteous enough? Have, am I ahead of enough people to be okay with God? So he said it didn't bring him any hope. Paul himself would say it didn't bring him any peace. Because this person that lives this way, this person will distance themselves from Jesus. Because you know what they see in Jesus? They see one who is truly holy and holy, is truly righteous, and it makes them uncomfortable. And so this person will distance themselves uh, from Jesus. And so one day, Paul... Saul at the time, Jesus changed his name later, but Paul is walking down this road 
and he's on his way to persecute Christians. And he's on his way to kill some more Christians because he viewed them as a threat to his religion, to, to his standing with God, and he couldn't have that. So he's on his way to do his work, and Jesus shines this bright light in his eyes. It blinds him. And during this period of blindness, Jesus appears to Paul, and he tells Paul who he, who he, he, tells Paul who he was. He tells Paul, Paul, he tells Paul what he came to do. And here's what he, the other thing. He tells Paul, I have a plan for your life. And Paul's life was changed. And Paul viewed it as a grace thing. He, this is why Paul, a lot of people refer to Paul as the grace guy of the Bible, right? And Paul became a grace guy because he said, here I was persecuting the Lord's church. Here I was persecuting the Lord's people. And Jesus came after me. Jesus rescued me. Jesus gave me a new purpose for living. And Paul was so overwhelmed by that sense of grace that he preached it and he taught it and he loved it his whole day because he was just overwhelmed that Jesus would give two cents about him after what he had done. And yet Jesus comes after Paul. And it was this being overwhelmed by grace that caused Paul to write uh, verse two. To the churches in Galatians, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present age, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about grace, in this text, we see a definition of the gospel, and here it is on the screen for you. Here, the simplest definition of the gospel. Jesus gave himself for our sins. All right? If you want to know what is the gospel, what is the good news, as succinctly as it can be said, Paul says it here. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Paul was a guy, he, he followed this line system of holiness and righteousness. And Paul had always believed in his own righteousness. He'd always believed in his own goodness, that his own goodness could result in good favor with God, that his own uh, efforts could result in a, a good standing with God. And Paul needed to learn the most important lesson I can communicate. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So do not trust in your own righteousness. Do not trust in your own goodness because all have sinned. You know, I did a lot of study this week and you know what the word all means? All. All. Some things just mean what they say. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may sin in a different way than I sin, but we both sin. And our sinness has separated us from a holy and righteous God. I always tell people, if you don't understand this, you either have a low sense of your own sinfulness, right, or a low sense of God's righteousness. But you've got a, you, you've got a low sense of, of something because when you realize your own sinfulness, it should drive you to Jesus Christ for your salvation. And this is why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It is death of that relationship. Our sin separates us from God. And here's the truth. This is very, very profound. Not, but here it is. Jesus was not okay with that. He was not okay with us being separated from our heavenly father. So the gospel says, here's the gospel that he gave his life on the cross. He died in our place. Why? Why would he do this? So we could know God 
so we could worship God and so we could follow God. And here's the most important, I keep saying the most important thing, but this really is important. It's not the most important thing, but it's important. You were created for that. I believe there is this thing inside of you that yearns to know God. I believe that God was, when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb, when God was knitting me together in my mother's womb, I believe God placed this inside of us. It is a desire to know him, a desire to worship him, a desire to follow him. That is inside of you and it is inside of me. And yet our sin kept us from God and Jesus said, no, 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 I'm gonna make, I'm gonna do something about this. The wages of sin is death, I'll die in your place. I'll pay the, the price for your sin so that you can know, worship, and follow the God you were created to know, worship, and follow. And I believe that was placed inside of you. This is why years and years ago, uh, Tom Brady, Super Bowl guy, uh, was being interviewed on 60 Minutes. I want to read to you this exchange because I think it's powerful. Here's what Brady said. There are times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have, at the time, three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. And I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? The 60 Minutes interviewer said, what is the answer? Here's Brady's answer. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Paul knew. Paul knew. There is this desire for the divinity placed inside of you. A desire to know God. And Paul knew, Paul learned that his own righteousness and his own effort, this system I described, it just didn't get him there. It just didn't get him there. His own sense of, it left him without peace, it left him without joy, it left him without hope, it left him out without relationship, because no matter how hard he tried, there was always more sin to deal with, and isn't that true of you and I as well? But here's what Paul learned, driven by grace and his love for us, Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' effort did get him there. And so the point of the gospel is that we would stop trusting in our own efforts and we would trust in the efforts of Jesus because Jesus' efforts are enough. Jesus' efforts were good enough. Jesus' righteousness, righteousness is perfect enough. And that, my friends, is the gospel, that Jesus gave his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place. That Jesus lived a perfect life as a perfect example for us to follow. That Jesus gives us the perfect Holy Spirit to perfectly lead us into increased righteousness and, and holiness, not so that we can be God's children, but because we are. Right? God does care about your righteousness and your holiness. He cares about it in the right order. Right? He doesn't care about our righteousness and our, and our holiness so that we can be made right with God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He cares about your righteousness and holiness because he cares about you and you are his child in a saved relationship with him. And so he does care about how you live. Right? I am not going to walk up to your children and grandchildren and start giving them my rules for how they should live and, when they're not at my home. That is not my place. They're not my kids. And you'd be offended if I did that. Now, we're going to pick my son up from kids' zone. We're going to pick my daughter up. And I will throughout the day today, most likely. Explain to them my rules and Cheryl's rules for how our household lives. Why? They're my kids. 
and I care about how they live. And so Jesus does care about your holiness and your righteousness, not so you'll be saved, but because you are. Now, this is the point where here's where most of Christianity gets focused. Say, all right, Steve, I got it. I needed to spend a little longer than I thought, about 15 minutes on that. But um, here's where, all right, we got it. So we are saved and we are forgiven. And the point of that is so that now we can go to heaven when we die. This is, Christianity's been focused on this for a real long time. And listen, it's true. Part of this is true, that we are saved so that our eternity is secure. But we just tend to get very, very focused on that. And we tend to like to think a lot about heaven and all of that stuff. And I get it. I get why passages like Revelation, I love this passage in Revelation, talking about eternity. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. I love this. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's how things used to be, Jesus says, in eternity. It's not that way now. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. And we are, we love to think about heaven, don't we? I do about what is it going to be like? What is it going uh, to look like? What, what is, I mean, we know that like one of the most cherished things here, gold, is like pavers in heaven, right? Uh, um, so we know the sea is as clear as crystal. I love water, I'm a water guy. And so we know, and loved ones, you know, bo- both of our, our moms and our families that have gone to be with the Lord. I mean, we yearn for that, we love that. And while it's true that our next life is secure because of the grace and kindness of Jesus, That's not the only point Paul is trying to make in this text. I love how Paul says it. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Why? To rescue us from the present evil age. For Paul, this wasn't just about the next life, being saved eternally. For Paul, Jesus was looking to, by his grace and by his work, Jesus was looking to save us now in the present age. This word could literally be translated today. So Jesus, in Paul's mind, wasn't just looking to save us someday. He was looking to save us today from the present evil age. And I think this uh, flowed directly from Paul's experience, that he had been on his way to kill Christians. He had been on his way to persecute the church, and a bright light shone in his face, and he went from persecutor to preacher, church planter, apostle, that his life was forever changed by Jesus. His life was forever changed by grace. And we, miss, we must understand this, I think, that Jesus didn't just come to take you to eternity. He, he's gonna take you to eternity, but he didn't just come to take you to eternity. He came to do something right now, today, in the present. And I think we have to understand this, that we have so, for much of Christianity, we have so been future-focused on the streets of gold and the crystal sea and being reunited with loved ones that we have forgotten that the grace of Jesus wants to transform us now, today, and in the present. And how does that happen? How does somebody go from persecuted to preacher? How, how does someone, I've been thinking about my own family, a, a, a lifetime of generations of alcoholism and abuse. And one day Jesus shows up in our family and our family was forever changed by Jesus. How does that happen? What does that look like? And Paul tells us. He says, I am astonished 
that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel, a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if an angel came from heaven and should preach a gospel different from the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, and now say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You want to know how a life is changed by Jesus? How a family is changed? You want to know what that looks like? Here's the phrase I want you to become just fixated on. Here it is. We live in the grace of Christ. We live in grace. This is what it means to be changed by grace. We live in it. And this is important. Paul is making a reference to this other gospel. These Judaizers, they were called, had come into the Galatian churches, and they were saying, no, no, no. The work of Jesus on the cross, the work of Jesus to save you from your sins, is not enough. The Judaizers were teaching, you need to be circumcised. You need to be Jewish. You need to do something. It was Jesus plus. And Paul says, no, no, no. This is not the gospel I gave to you. The gospel I gave to you was the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that his work on the cross is enough to save you from your sins. And and Paul gets angry about it, but Paul uses the strongest language possible to condemn these false teachers. He says they are under a curse. And he even goes so far, if an angel came from heaven and preached to you a different gospel than Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, he says, let them be Let that angel be a curse because here's what Paul understands. He wants us to understand and celebrate grace. He is directly refuting this teaching and he exalts the work of Jesus as enough. And I will tell you, I'm sweating today. I'm preaching too hard. All right. Need to dial it back a little bit. All right. 43 now. I can't do this that way. All right. So I think our culture struggles with this in a different way than the Galatian churches did. Let me tell you my concern. My concern is that we, in Christianity, we have become too pragmatic. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, you can go to Amazon and you can go to a Christian bookstore and you can find thousands of books that will give you five steps to financial freedom, four steps to a better marriage, three steps to a great family, two steps to staying awake in church, right? That, That, you can find all of that stuff. And here's my concern. We are teaching people how to live, but we are not teaching people to live in grace. And this was Paul's number one priority. He says, no, 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 you're getting too, you're you're teaching people how to live, but you're not teaching people to live in grace. We are teaching people to live out the teachings of Christ without the power of Christ. And we are unintentionally teaching people, unintentionally, I believe, that they have the power and they have the ability to change their own lives. And in the words of my grandfather, that dog won't hunt, right? Because you are not strong enough, you are not good enough, you are not righteous enough. We need Christ. We need to be in dependence uh, on him, We need to be dependent on him. And many church leaders in our world, I have believed this for years, they have a deep-seated fear of grace. 
And the fear is that the teachings of grace will result in sinfulness. That if you teach people they're forgiven, if you teach people that the work on the cross was enough, if you teach people that they need to live in grace, that it's gonna be like Sinapalooza, right? That's the concern. And Paul believed the opposite. Paul believed that if you could get a people to love Christ, if you could get a people to love his grace, if you could get a people to live in the grace of Christ, you know, that old dance, you know, live right here. This is where you live, right? Right, live right here. Live in, I'm never doing that again, by the way, but (laughs) live in the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ is your sweet spot. Paul believed every single area of their life would change as the result of that. So let me put this truth on the screen for you. Grace will change your eternity, it will. But you better believe grace will change your present. It will change your eternity, but you better believe it will change your present. So Paul just had a different strategy. I've shared this with you before, but let me share it again. Paul had a different strategy. In almost every book that Paul writes, he starts in the first couple chapters of that book exalting the gospel. He shares what Christ has done. He shares what Christ has accomplished. He says, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he came to do. Here's a few bullet points that Paul usually hits on. You are forgiven. In Christ, you are forgiven, right? Your sins are forgiven. You are empowered that when you give your life to Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit to empower you to live a different life. You have received hope. In Christ, you have an example, And Paul's hope was that as he exalts the gospel in these first couple chapters of every book, that as he exalts the gospel and the good news, that it would be believed, that you would believe what Christ has done for you, that it would be celebrated, you would be overjoyed by what Christ has done for you, and that it would be internalized, that you would walk in grace, that you would live in grace. And let me give you a few quick things on on this. What what does it look like to live in grace? That we listen to songs about grace. We listen to sermons about grace. We read books about grace. We love the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because they exalt the grace of Christ. That this is our sweet spot. Grace is our sweet spot. We live in and function in Grace, and then here's what Paul believed. Because you, you re- read his writings, and this happens almost every time. And then, so he fills the cup of grace, and then as that cup begins to overflow, Paul will then address your marriage. Because Paul believed if you celebrated and internalized grace, grace will change your marriage. And then Paul would talk about your kids and your relationship with your kids. Because Paul believed if you filled the cup of grace, it would overflow into your kids' lives, and grace will change your children. Paul would then talk about your work life. Because Paul believed if you filled the cup of grace, that would overflow into your work life. And you better believe that when you go to work tomorrow, grace will change your work life. Then Paul would talk about finances, because he believed when, when grace overflowed, it would fall into your finances, and your finances would be changed by grace, but he understood that if you believe this first, believe it first, what Christ has done on the cross, I believe that, and then you celebrate it, and man, this is amazing, I just want to celebrate what Christ has done, and then you internalize it, that man, I am going to, I'm going to be a person that in the morning and at night and every time in between, I want to be a person that walks in and lives in grace. Paul believed if you became that person, 
your family would change, your marriage would change, your work life would change, your finances would change. Paul believed this, it's not very pro- profound. I'm, I'm s- taking Paul's words into a, uh, making them very succinct here. Grace changes everything. That was almost the title of the series, right? Grace changes everything. And Paul really believed that. He was a grace guy through and through. And so the Pauline approach, Paul's approach, was be dependent on Jesus. Be dependent on him for your salvation. Be dependent on him for your eternity. Be dependent on him for your present. Be dependent on him for your salvation. Be dependent on Christ. Love his grace. Celebrate his grace. Internalize his grace. And let this be our sweet spot. Right? That I am not making myself right. I am not good enough to do that. I am not making myself good enough. I'm not good enough to do that. I am not trusting in my own works to earn my salvation. That would be insanity. Why would I ever do that? But I am loving and trusting in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in his work because it was enough. I'm trusting in his righteousness because it's right enough. I'm trusting in his goodness because it's good enough. And I am going to live right here. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to internalize it. And I am going to watch it change and transform every relationship that I have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to live in grace. I do think that we, I'm very, very prone to this, so I'm, I'm talking about myself right now especially, but that we have become too pragmatic. That we want to give five steps to this, four steps to that, three, and we forget the first thing, <laughs> love you. And so right now, I pray that every person in this room would hear the gospel. And they would believe it. I want to pray that every person in this room right now that believes it would celebrate it. And that we'd internalize it. And then we'd be changed by it. We thank you for Jesus and for his work. May we trust in him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Back in Michigan, um, I worked with a a worship leader. This was years ago now that uh, she really believed um, that communion time uh, was almost like too somber. Uh, That she said, this really ought to be a celebration um, of of what Christ has done. At least some of the time, it ought to be a celebration. And, uh, you know, I, I... at our church, I just, we also got what you, your reaction just then. <laughs> it was the same reaction we had. <laughs> you know, um, and that's okay. But today, I want us to, to think through those steps that I let us in. I want to think about, when I think about my right standing with God, when I think about having the relationship with him I was created to have, how do I get there? Believe the work of Christ is enough to get you there. Believe celebrate, internalize. This is my one dance move right here. Cheryl will tell you, I don't dance, but I am willing to do this. I was petrified of our marriage. 
of uh, dancing the day we got married, but I, I did do it. It was very stiff and awkward, but we live right here in the grace of Christ, in the grace of Christ, in the grace of Christ. And so every single Sunday here, we receive communion. And it is a reminder for us, because every single one of us hears a new story or sees a neighbor do something. And every one of us has this moment where we're, I'm better than that. I'm better than them. So I must, I'm, and, and we start trusting in our own righteousness. So we, at this church, we believe we need a reminder every week of don't forget to live here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. I'm not trusting in my own righteousness. I'm a sinner. I'm not trusting in my own holiness. I'm trusting in grace. And it is going to change every area. But first, I must believe that the work of Christ is enough. And so we're going to receive communion together. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has the, the uh, bread represents the body. The other has some juice that represents the blood. And this is uh, what theologians would call the finished work of Christ. That, that, that he is enough. He is righteous. He is good. It's the finished work of Christ that we're trusting in. And then he is going to invade our lives and transform us. He's going to make us more holy and more righteousness as he works in our life. But it starts with his finished work and believing that he is enough. And so we're going to uh, celebrate the finished work of Christ right now. You can hold those two cups and uh, just thank him for his work. Thank him for his grace. We want to repent if we've been trusting our own righteousness. God, I want to trust in the righteousness of Jesus. And you can do all that over the next few minutes. Now come up and we'll receive communion together as a church family. All right.